Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Maltrop, Chief Executive of the City Club and a proud member. It's June 10th and we've got a virtual City Club forum with you. Today we're talking with Cleveland City Councilman Bashir Jones. He represents Ward 7, which as you probably know, encompasses Huff, St. Clair Superior, Midtown and Asiatown. He won the seat in 2017 in a very close race and he's become one of Cleveland City Council's emerging voices of leadership. He's also the city's first and only Muslim representative on council. During his time in office, Councilman Bashir Jones led the charge for Cleveland to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. He was one of the sponsors of the new resolution declaring racism a public health crisis in Cleveland. And he's called for reforms at the Cuyahoga County Jail and the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Justice Center. This morning, in fact, he dropped an op-ed on cleveland.com about the need to address serious health threats at the Juvenile Justice Center where youth are at risk for exposure to COVID. He wrote, quote, the sad reality is we're most likely seeing a lack of urgency because the youth we're talking about are mostly black. In Ohio, the system is entrenched with racial, racial disparities. Fortunately, he continued, we're at a crucial moment where Ohioans are rising up to eliminate the systemic racism and police brutality found throughout our state. And there's a very real chance to make change. As we push to make these changes, we cannot forget that the coronavirus pandemic is still a very real threat, and we must protect our vulnerable brothers and sisters suffering in prison. That's from Councilman Bashir Jones's op-ed in Cleveland.com this morning. Prior to holding elected office, Councilman Jones was a news talk radio host on Radio One, served various roles in both Barack Obama's presidential campaigns, and created the Be the Change leadership series for students. Now, before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our generous members and sponsors and donors who support our virtual forums. You can see a full list at cityclub.org slash thank you. And you can join them when you support our work by making a contribution or becoming a member at cityclub.org. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions on any topic in the Councilman's Wheelhouse. Text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. Councilman Jones, welcome back to the City Club of Cleveland. Salam alaikum, my friend. Wa'alaikum salam, my, my good friend Dan. How you doing, man? You're doing a fantastic job, brother. Thank you, sir. We're trying. We're trying. These are um, these are difficult times, and as you and I were just talking about uh, prior to um, going live here, this is uh, there's a lot being asked of leaders in our community today. I want to start off by asking you about the op-ed you you dropped this morning at, on Cleveland.com, focusing our attention on the juvenile justice center and the risk of COVID um, for those who are for the youth who are there. You Why? Know, where did this come from? Tell us about. Well, it. you know, I, for the past. Uh, couple months now, ever since uh, COVID-19, uh, we've been really leading the charge to, to ask the governor to take a look at those who are incarcerated because they are, um, you know, very susceptible to, to, to get these, to get this disease and spread it fairly quickly because of the condition. And I understand people's concern, um, you know, are we trying to let go of those uh, who committed these crimes. But the fact is, is that many of the people in, in some of these in, in these institutions, they are, uh, were already there for nonviolent crimes. So keeping them there, uh, number one, isn't safe um, for COVID-19, but also um, we need to be more focused on rehabilitation in this, in this, uh, in this city and in this state. Uh, Governor, DeWine, Governor DeWine, I believe, uh, has been doing a, a great job in communicating 
to um, communicating to us as, as residents of Ohio, uh, but I believe has been very slow to acknowledge this petri dish, so to speak, of, of, of inmates, um, of those who are incarcerated. Um, they don't need to stay in there if they're not there for violent crimes. Uh, if you can let them go, they should be let go. Councilman, uh, right, this would have been three months ago, I think, when we spoke last spoke with Armin Budish, County Executive Armin Budish, um, about the response, the county's response to the COVID crisis. And he said at the time that they let out, uh, they reduced the jail population by almost half um, in the in the adult jail. I don't know, I, and I'm, I'm trying to remember if that's exactly correct or not, but it raised a question that I think you're pointing to, if you can do it in this moment, release nonviolent offenders in this moment, mm -hmm. why couldn't you have done it prior to this moment? Uh, you know, more more yeah. importantly, to your point, has the same uh, consideration been given to those who are currently staying at the Juvenile Justice Center? It's a great, great question, and it's a great point. And our county jail, uh, has been practicing um, this, you know, this, these inhumane conditions existed prior to COVID-19. And if the county can't deal with that, then how do we expect them to respond to a crisis? You know, one thing about our city and our county is that we're too reactive and we're not proactive enough. We're just not proactive enough. And, um, what COVID-19 did was expose, it exposed uh, the, the, the inequality that exists in our city, in our county, in our state, and in reality, our country. Councilman, I wanna ask you um, about the recent, uh, the recent announcement, the declaration that city council put out uh, declaring racism as a public health crisis. This followed uh, a similar, um, a similar resolution out of Franklin County, uh, which is the, the county where Columbus is, and other resolutions across the, across well, the country. Well, we actually were before Franklin County. We actually had it before, but COVID-19 pushed us, pushed us back. We actually had this yeah. declaration back in uh, end of February, March. It was um, in the works. Yes, yes. It was in the works, but hadn't been, hadn't been fully approved. Right. Um, what do you want to see happen? This is a, we talked about this with uh, your colleague, Councilman Blaine Griffin, a little bit last week. And one of the questions that I asked him that I'd like to hear from you on is, what will this actually change? You know, Malcolm, Malcolm X, he said that if you stick a knife in my back nine inches and you pull it out six inches, that is not progress. You would have to remove the knife completely and begin to heal the wound. But America won't even admit that the knife is there. What this, this declaration does is that it admits that the knife is there. What I would like to see from it is, as I was talking to the leadership over at Rainbow Children's Hospital and have meetings with other institutional CEOs to say, what are some tangible things that you will do to, uh, to increase equality in our city? You know, I would love to see institutions like Key Bank and institutions like Cleveland Clinic and other major institutions to have more people of color, more women in upper management. We want to see uh, for those who are working within your institution to be more culturally competent. I would like to see the safety forces here in the city of Cleveland represent the demographics of the city a lot more. I mean, we live in a city where 
our safety forces, Cleveland Police Department, 60% white men. Uh, the fire department, 75% white men. EMS, 65% white men. Um, the city will continue to lose population if we are a city that is not open to all people, where all people doesn't don't feel, when they don't feel that they're able to rise up in a city, um, not just politically, but economically and socially and culturally, if they don't feel that they can do that, then why would you want to stay in the city? So this document is the admittance that is there. And now as city council, our goal is to say to institutions in this city, we don't want to hear about, you know, what you've done and, 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 and you know, the little tit for tat thing. No, give us some tangible steps that you plan to make that will show us that you are serious about eradicating structural racism. So those are um, those are some those are specific goals that I hear more uh, diversity among in C-suite offices and upper management you mentioned, and um, as well as cultural competence training, safety forces in in every way better representing the demographics of the city is and those are all specific starting places. Um, with respect to infant mortality and lead poisoning, which have had a disproportionate impact on communities of color, do does this declaration, do you see this declaration bringing more weight to that work or more resources to that work? Well, you know, it's unfortunate that some people need data and documents, whereas others live it every day. So I, I didn't need a, a, a document to say that racism is a public health crisis when uh, when I feel the stress every single day in being a black man in this country. But for others, they need that. I believe that it's a step in the right direction. Um, and you know, the institutions have been reaching out. Everyone's excited to prove that they are not an institution that is adverse to equity. But um, it's important that not only as myself, as a councilman, but also as a community, we have to ensure that people do what they say they're going to do. Just a reminder, if you have questions for Councilman Bashir Jones, you can tweet them at the City Club or you can text your question to 330-541-5794. We'll work it into the second half of the program. If you sent your question earlier, it's already in the queue. Councilman, um, there are calls in, in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd and in the wake of the protests that, uh, that we've been seeing across the country and around the world since that, um, since that tragedy. There have been calls to defund the police or abolish the police. You sit on the Public Safety Committee, City Council. Um, I don't know if you guys have had a meeting uh, recently to discuss, these, to discuss that idea, but-, um, but I I just called for a meeting and um, and also don't forget Dan uh, Desmond Franklin here and right Desmond here. Franklin here in, in Cleveland that's right thank you for reminding me um, so uh, how do you see it what should be done is defunding the police uh, Councilman Kelly uh, and Governor DeWine had more or less the same response which is Governor DeWine said that's absurd um, and uh, he did and Councilman Kelly um, seem to dismiss the idea saying uh, I don't I don't have the direct quote but um, said you know that, that that's prob probably not the direction that the city of Cleveland would go and that the consent decree and the policies coming out of that are sufficient how do you see it as a member of the public safety committee 
it's it's sufficient. That that doesn't. I would have heard have to hear that from his mouth um, because I just couldn't believe that that would be the response. But um, it's not working. Uh, the biggest issue that we have in the city of Cleveland around policing is our police union, um, which was founded during a time when during the Glenville riots, when when Mayor Carl Stokes made the statement to remove all white police officers and allow the black police officers to bring rest to the community. Um, and then that's when the, the police union was founded back in the 60s. So um, this idea of defunding the police is not is definitely not absurd. We have to absolutely, uh, we have to absolutely look at how uh, we are policing and it's not working. It's not working. When I have to battle the, uh, when I have to battle um, the hiring, the rehiring of the murderer of Tamir Rice, that's a problem that I have to battle that. That we had to battle um, when Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams, cop jumped on the car, shot into the car. The car was riddled with bullets, 137 shots, only to find out that there were no guns in the car and the sound that they heard was a backfiring of the car. We, we, we have not been policing correctly in Cleveland. And the idea of defunding police or renegotiating this contract between the police union, it's clear that where we are is not where we want to be and where we need to be. And just because, you know, I had one of my colleagues say that they were pro-police. And I said, when you say you're pro-police, what does that mean? Because those type of statements it touches black and brown people in a way that reminds us of the atrocities that we have faced as a result at the hands of the police. I'm not pro-police, I'm pro-justice. I'm pro-justice. And that means that I support the police when they're right and I'm gonna get on them when they're wrong. And the community, I support them when they're right and we're gonna get on them when they're wrong. It's not black versus white, it's racist versus everybody. So Councilman, when, um one of the challenges that the defund the police or abolish the police uh, advocacy agenda faces is that the police are so deeply entrenched in government services that, that taxpayers pay for and citizens rely on, that it's really difficult for people to imagine what replaces the police? How do we stay safe without police? Um, and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit to if, if the division of police were to find their budget constrained um, and shrunk, mm -hmm. who would take over? What would happen? How does that work? Um, isn't that, isn't that unfortunate that you even have to ask that question? Yeah. It, uh, it, because, well, the community, well, because the community, the community, you see, if, if the people of this community felt encouraged and felt inspired and motivated, they would take care of their own community. See, if the, if, if, if the only time that we can be safe is when the police come around, then that's a problem. The community has to be encouraged to say, listen, you have to take care of your community. You have to take care of it. You have to protect it, right? So I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that I am for the total removal of police. But I, what I can say is, is that if defunding the police will bring the police union to the table to have a serious conversation about increasing diversity, about police tactics, 
about, you know, one of the things that we want to do is see is that when there's a murder from the police officer, that there's an outside investigator immediately instead of it being uh, being worked on inside. If the police union cannot come to the table and really create a, 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 a document that is more that has more community input and that we can begin to live in a city that is not so heavily policed. But the police must have a mindset that they're here to serve. Listen, Dan, I'm tired of talking to young black kids about how they're supposed to act when a police officer comes around. No, the conversation needs to be switched. Police need to know how they are to deal with the community. And if they're not culturally competent, then that's a problem. I want to see from the administration or whoever the next mayor is, there must be a plan around diversity. You can't have a safe city when 65% of the police force is white men who are policing a majority black city. That doesn't make sense. Councilman, uh, right now, the I'm, I'm, we're recording this, we're doing this. I'm, I happen to be sitting in, in my office at 9th and Euclid. Um, the riots that uh, followed the peaceful protests a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago now, um, decimated parts of this parts of downtown. Um, the uh, as riots, um, many causes, and I'm not going to get into the the. I don't want to get into responsibility and and all of that. I do want to ask you though about rebuilding our city and your vision for the future of the city. Um, there's a lot of a lot of resources that will go into uh, rebuilding the parts of downtown that were hit hardest by the riots. Um, and at the same time, we've heard from other activists and advocates and many other voices and of frankly common sense throughout the community. Um, there have been conditions that look like this throughout Cleveland for decades. Um, talk about rebuilding and equity. You know, Dan, we if we're gonna rebuild anything we have to start with rebuilding the people's trust for this city. We have to start rebuilding that. You know, Frederick Douglass said, we can't talk about the rebellion without talking about what caused the rebellion. And buildings and windows can be fixed, but what about the morale and the hope, the, the, the hope that is needed to, to increase in our city? But when we continue to have situations where people do not feel that their voices are being heard. Dr. King said rioting is the language of the unheard. But I do want to say on another note that businesses, I appreciate them and we must support them. And many of those businesses, if not all, um, uh, are doing a great job. They could have chosen to be anywhere in the world, but they chose to remain here in Cleveland. And as a city, we have to do whatever we need to do to ensure that we help them rebuild. But at the same time, while we're doing that, um, if the conversation is only about fixing buildings and fixing windows and giving grants to uh, businesses to rebuild, and the conversation is not about uh, rebuilding the hope that this city will treat everyone with equity, then we're then we're going backwards. If, you know, if it was me, Dan, I would have I would have sat down the activist. And I would have said, listen, let's talk. Let's talk about what steps need to that we need to take to move forward as a city. 
What are the steps we need to take? And then we would have begun to chart that path. Let, let me say, man, Cleveland, it's a beautiful quote that says, you cannot handle 21st century problems in an 18th century way. Cleveland has to catch up with the times. We have to be the progressive city that we have the potential to be. And we can't continue to deal with things the way that we've dealt with them. We have to catch up with the times so that we can take our place back as an international city. But as long as people feel hopeless, as long as the east side continues to look ran down and parts of the west side continue to look ran down and people feel as if they are not welcomed, then we will never get to where we're trying to go. You know, Councilman, when I first came to the City Club, I um, spent some time listening to uh, tape from our archives. And um, and there's a there's an archival bit of tape that uh, that we have on our website from 1966. Um, that was a response to the grand jury report that investigated the origins of the Huff riots. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I, I bring this up because you represent Huff. You carry this, uh, the weight of uh, the historic weight and, and of that neighborhood and those really vitally important civil rights uprisings that happened. Um, that, that forum uh, featured Lou Stokes. It was the first time Lou Stokes spoke at the City Club. Wow. And um, and the grand jury report had identified as the source of the the reason that uh, the riots had occurred, the catalyst, um, communists and outside agitators. Mm -hmm. It was um, it was a, a a little bit of a, a an echo. We heard an echo of that in you know the blaming of the riots on uh, outside agitators in Antifa this uh, in recent in recent weeks. Right. But the thing I wanted, to, and the and the other the other piece of it was another speaker was Baxter Hill, who ran the Congress on Racial Equality here in Cleveland, right. that office, and he said to the City Club at the time, the next time the fire is going to come to your doorstep, I'm not saying this is a threat, it's just a fact, um, and he admonished the City Club members. He said, "You all could have done something about this. Mm -hmm. You all are in the power, had the, have the power and the influence to do something. You haven't." And the fire is going to come to your door next time. Mm -hmm. um, that was 1966, over 50 years ago. Yeah. And here we are still. Um, I don't really have a question. I just am sort of just want to put your role in that kind of really significant historical context. And, you know, like, do you, do you see yourself in that, in that tradition, in carrying on that that the tradition of Lou Stokes and Carl Stokes, Baxter Hill, and others. You know, uh, you know, as you were speaking, I couldn't help but to get emotional because this is the same America. And what do I tell my son? Um, we're tired of telling our sons the same stories that our fathers told us and our grandfathers told them and so forth and so on. Um, you know, the Huff uprising that took place, the Glenville uprising and all across the city, all across the country, um, we're tired of reliving this wound that is not, has not been given the proper time to even heal where we have to continue to rip the Band-Aid off. It continues to be infected with a virus that is worse than COVID-19. 
and the virus of structural racism. And until we look at this as a multicultural problem and not a black problem, then it will remain. So I say to, I, I, I um, unfortunately, there are some people who are more moved by their property being destroyed than they are moved by the murder of a young black boy. I mean, can you imagine if this officer who murdered George Floyd, if he was kneeling on the neck of a dog, I can guarantee you would have been much more outrage throughout the country. So, but I think it's something different now. As we look around the world, protests are happening around the world calling for justice. As I just did an interview with BBC World News, I made the statement that America cannot be the police for the world when they're having a hard time policing themselves. We have to bring justice. And I think that Cleveland is prime to take that position and that step. We are a major city, but we are like a small major city. But we have to implement the talk of equity and the way that we do that. It can't just be a bottom up approach. It can't just be, let's, let's tell the victims how to respond to their victimization. No, we have to have the dialogue with the CEOs and the presidents. And we, went, and we have to see a strong commitment and action that, that you will dismantle structural racism. Um, this has to be the way. One, what else, you talked earlier, I wanna circle back to this, what you said earlier about rebuilding trust. Um, the is it when you say that we are that trust is lacking is that simply because of policing and the way policing has happened is it because of is it because of the the role of elected leadership throughout our community what what is it what are you getting at exactly and you know dan we all play a part in this issue mm -hmm. i mean once again we live in a city where uh, for the past 16 years, we've had a black mayor. We got black council. For the for the past years, we've had black people in position. So don't get me wrong. Uh, structural racism is not just implemented by white people. Structural racism, some of the worst purveyors of structural racism are black people in position who continue to hold back the black community. And that's no doubt about that. And the problem that we have in our city, the problem we have in our city is a lack of succession planning, that we are not preparing a new generation to take over. Well, you have people who are who literally want to die with the torch in their hand instead of passing it and preparing the next generation to take our city forward. I wanted to you what you just mentioned uh, about the role of the role of black leaders. I wanted to point to Jonathan Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own. Um, he's a professor who um, spoke at the City Club. We can get that, that a link to that forum shared on social media as well. Um, that's a really important point about the, the ways in which we all have a, a role to play. I want to transition to uh, questions uh, from our, our audience right now. If you have a question, text it to 330-541. 5794, the number's on the screen right now. You can tweet it at the City Club, we'll work it in. Um, Councilman, uh, the, uh, I wanna ask you um, specifically about 
where did this, this, I think this, I saw this earlier, I'm not seeing it in my list right now, but um, the public comment, part of building trust with the public is listening. Um, there's, as I understand it right now, there's no mechanism for public comment in the virtual uh, meetings that council is, is having. Uh, what's gonna be done about that? Well, even before the virtual meetings, there's no public comment in the regular meetings. And when there is a public comment, it's, it's held at, at a time that people are at work. I mean, listen, if you continue to suppress the voice of the people, it's gonna come out and it's gonna come out in some shape or form. So, I mean, I believe that city council could create a way that, you, that allows people to speak, you know, give them a certain time period, let them know that they can't be vulgar, they can't do this, they can't do that, and allow them to allow them to say a few words. There's nothing to add an extra 30 minutes or even an hour for that matter of, of listening to the community. And I believe that once people feel they have a voice and that their concerns are being heard, then you'll find uh, the very people who would have been destructive before, now they're being uplifting because they're saying, you know what, now I feel like this is my city. This is my city and I'm not gonna let anybody destroy it. In Ward 7, you know, when people want to build in my community, number one, uh, they have to build with the consent of the community, right? And when the community feels like you're not just a building in, the, in, this, in this place, for example, we created something called a community land trust. We have a $30 million project that's coming to completion on Ansel and Huff. Well, they wanted to build there, but in order for them to do that, they had to lease the land from the community. So that way the community looks at this building as not just uh, belonging to someone else, but in actuality, this is a part of me. Our people in the city of Cleveland, of all races, all cultures, all ethnicities, all religion, must feel that this city is theirs. And if they feel like the city is theirs, they'll not they will not tear it up because they're not going to tear up anything that belongs to them. And until they do, until they do, then it's no holds barred. Councilman, um, as a uh, as a representative of all of Ward Seven, you also represent Asia Town. Yes. St. Clair Superior, some uh, neighborhoods that aren't uh, strictly African-American. Many yes. see you as an, as a, a, an important and emerging African-American leader. Um, what is your, this is a question from, from the audience, what is your relationship with the uh, communities in Asiatown and other foreign-born communities? Yeah, you know, I wish I, wish I was, I had them on here. I, I get letters in Mandarin Chinese all the time of, of a community that had been forgotten but we've done some things recently that now things are going well with the help of Midtown. Uh, we recently hired two um, or two to three uh, outreach workers from that community who can speak the language. We recently named the street Stanley Ng um, after one of, the, uh, one of the pioneers of that community. And right now I'm looking to name a recreation center after uh, an Asian American. So. The, 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 the community is doing very well. We're working with them. I'm working, you know, one of the big things, I was the only council person to do this, where uh, we were having problems with xenophobia and with COVID-19, and you have a president that's saying this is a Chinese virus, so it began to affect Asian businesses. So I went over there, ordered some food, uh, did some lives, and just to let that community know that um, I am not an African-American leader that I am a leader for humanity, 
I'm a leader for justice. Uh, when I fought to remove Columbus Day, I was by myself and fighting for Indigenous People Day. When I fought for the Cuyahoga County Jail, when I fought for um, all these different initiatives, it wasn't just for quote unquote black people, it was for all people. And um, it, the love is, uh, you know, they taught, they taught me shin shin. Uh, that's the only word that I know. I have to learn some more. <laughs> um, question for Councilman Jones. Uh, during his interview on the, with the City Club, Councilman Griffin spoke about the consent decree as if the existence of the document means police reform in Cleveland is over. You and I have talked about this a little bit, but this is a more pointed question. It is not, our listener writes, what action will city council do to increase community and city council involvement in the process established by the consent decree for the people of Cleveland to address systemic racism, bias, and excessive force used in the Cleveland Police Department? Will city council consider establishing a permanent civilian oversight system? You know, one thing about city council is that it's a body of 16 other members. And if you really pay attention so since I came into office, it'll be clear to you who has been some of the most resounding voices in City Hall speaking for justice and equity. So I can't speak for other council people, but what I can say is that I'll continue to be a voice, I'll continue to fight, but it takes you as a community to join us. Uh, the emails are great, but you need to show up and show out um, because um, I stood by myself to remove the uh, remove Columbus Day. You know, I stood by myself on the steps of the Cuyahoga County Jail because of the inhumane conditions. I stood by myself, um, I'm talking about as an elected official, uh, speaking up for um, the, the, the inmates at, at Marion. You know, so I, 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 if I continue to stand by myself on these issues, then I'll continue to be the minority um, on these topics. I believe this should be complete. The consent decree obviously is not working. <laughs> I mean, that's clear. We just had a new death with Desmond Franklin. We just was battling with the officer of Tamir Rice trying to get back on the force due to the police union. So obviously the consent decree is not working. The city has power. The city has a bully pulpit, but the city is not using it. Councilman, uh, this from Danielle Rashid, mother of Logan Dior Williams. Yes, yes, my God. Uh, the question is, Simply, what can we continue to do to spread awareness, hope, and love? Thank you for all that you do for us. Bit of a softball, but do you want to tell us who she is? I love Logan. Logan is an up-and-coming leader, and her mom uh, is Miss Rasheed, and her grandmother is Yvonne Pointer, for those who know Yvonne Pointer, who's our community mother. Um, but, you know, I think that there is no justice without love, and there is no love without justice. Fighting for justice is expressing love out loud. And I believe that this city has so much potential, but we, 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 we are reactive and we move so slow unnecessarily. We don't have to move slow. I believe that we have to address the issue with our school district. We have to address the issue with our safety forces. We have to address the issue of how city hall does business. Right. So that when a, when a citizen has a concern, you know, just like when you call a, a company, you know, they they map it out from your call to the completion of what you were calling for. The city has that. The city needs to be more automated. The city has the opportunity to do these things. But um, uh, it's time for a new direction. It sounds like you're running for mayor. 
<laughs> I, I just I can just see the problems. You know, I think Stevie Wonder can see it. Um, and you know, now being inside of City Hall, uh, it don't take you long to find where the bathrooms are. And either I'm not the type of council person who you know wants to be a career councilman or career politician for that matter. Uh, I see the change and it needs to happen. If you look inside Ward 7, you will see the majority of developments are being led by minority, uh, I don't even want to say minorities because blacks are not the minorities. So I, the, you, you find women, you find African-American, and in some cases you find both. If you look, if you go through Ward 7, you're seeing an increase of artwork. You're seeing an open air art museum. Why? Because art has a way of, of, of truly um, waking up the consciousness. If you, you'll see that we're beginning to change the culture in Ward 7. Um, and we're knocking down these homes and knocking out these blight. We're encouraging community members to own the land. And we're changing the culture of a neighborhood to say, remember your history, League Park. Remember your history, Dunham Tavern. Remember your history, Moses House. Look at where you've come from and look at where we can go if we have leadership and if we have people who are concerned for all people not just concern for their family, concern for all people. Yes, sir. Councilman, a few minutes ago, you mentioned problems with the school district and I want and addressing problems with the school district. I'd like to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about what you mean. You know, I think, I think the school district faces the same problems as our safety forces. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think all people with good hearts who are culturally competent should Teach our teach our students and, and 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 serve our communities, but there is definitely you find a deficiency in black and brown people who are teachers and who are in upper management. So this is a, a major problem. I think that the CEO Eric Gordon has uh, has done the best job that he can do, um, and I believe that we have to take it to the next level. Being that uh, we live in a city where the the mayor is in control. Um, it, it boils back down to how do we become a city where our education is placed on the pedestal? Um, our city will continue to decrease in population if parents don't feel like the schools are good enough for their children. I, I believe that there's been some growth. There's been some amazing growth, um, but we have we have far, far to go. Councilman, one of the issues that the um, that has been raised repeatedly regarding schools, particularly in this era of the COVID-19 pandemic, is the digital divide. CEO, district CEO Eric Gordon uh, told us a few weeks ago that he that the district had purchased 9000 hotspots to distribute to families so that um, so that those families, the students in those families could continue to connect with their teachers. Otherwise, they would have been completely cut off. A hotspot, as you know, is not a permanent solution. What should be done? Dan, this is also a step. This is also a reminder of being reactive. The digital divide has always ex has always existed. It's always there. That's why in Ward 7, partnering with Digital C, our goal is to make Ward 7 Wi-Fi connected. Because what's happening is with the libraries being closed, with schools being closed, children are, are don't have the opportunity to apply for school or apply for jobs parents can't apply for jobs this digital divide is a serious one once again you can't handle um 21st century problems in an 18th century way 
this should have been happening. Now I'm thankful that it's going. I've I've, I've purchased many uh, laptops and hotspots for our community, but but we need to seriously put the investment in uh, towards uh, digital literacy and making sure that our residents from the east side to the west side have connectivity. What's the timeline of your work with Digital C? I'm hoping that it's before I run run again. <laughs> you know, you know, people know me, Dan, that I don't like things done tomorrow. I like them done yesterday, man. Uh. You know, people are dying right now, Dan. People are dying right now. People are hurt right now. So when the ball can be moved quickly, you know, I know a Chia Pet takes even two weeks, but, you know, things that can happen quickly, we should move them quickly because people's lives are on the line. Councilman, this uh, question comes from John Ryan from Senator Brown's office. Councilman, it's great to hear you speak out about Asiatown and speaking out against the attacks against Asians regarding the coronavirus. Senator Brown has spoken out about the attacks against Asians and against racism against African-Americans. What can we all do together to bring together the fight against all racism? My, my good friend, my good friend, this issue that you're talking about once again is a human issue. It's a human issue. And once we recognize that this is a human issue, then we'll begin to address it in a different way. I've had so many phone calls and emails from the Jewish community. I did, did a talk with uh, Rabbi Lerner and others and, and, and telling the Jewish community, listen, the oppression that you've experienced, you understand this oppression that we are dealing with. So it's imperative that we become partners in the fight for justice. And I'm in the position legislatively or politically rather uh, to do something legislatively, right? But we need every facet of the community to fight for justice. And um, I believe that that is the key. So thank you to, uh, to Senator Brown for all the work that he's done for so many years. He was one of the people that inspired me uh, to run along with my, 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 my mama, I call her mama, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who really inspired and has been an ear of wisdom for me. But I want everybody to know there's two people there's two types of people that will not be forgotten after this is all over. One are the people who stood up and fought and made sure that they fought for all people to take care of all people. You will not be forgotten. And the other group that would not be forgotten is the people who didn't do anything and only cared about themselves. You won't be forgotten either. Councilman, one of the questions behind uh, Mr. Ryan, John Ryan's question is, what exactly is anti-racism? And I think a lot of people, this is a, a term that uh, some people are hearing just for the first time this last month. Many of us have been thinking about this for a while, but how do you define anti-racism? Interesting, interesting. You know, instead of saying anti-racism, I just like to use the word justice. You know, Mother Teresa said, if you invite me to an anti-war rally, I won't come. But if you invite me to a peace rally, I'll be there. I think that whatever we give energy to is what we'll give power to. So instead of anti-racism, I just say love for all humanity, man. And uh, if you express that in your everyday work and your everyday walk, and do not be a receptacle that when people are speaking hatred, don't just sit there, but you must address it and you must fix it, or if not, Maybe it didn't come out of your mouth, but you will be held responsible because you didn't correct it. Councilman Bashir Jones, as you know, represents Ward 7. If you have a question for him, text it to 330-541-5794 or 
or tweet it at the city club. We'll work it in. Uh, this question, I'd like to ask Councilman Jones what he sees as the role of women in leadership roles in his community, especially at this time in the civil rights movement. Women have always been the backbone. Women have always been the backbone of every movement that this country and this world has ever seen. We, If we had more women in upper management who were making decisions, this world would be a different place, no doubt about it. So I believe and I support that. I support that wholeheartedly, that women should not be working jobs and making less than men who are working those same jobs. But that is a, uh, that is a, also a part of structural racism, even though that's genderism or ageism or sexism and so forth and so on. So I, I believe that we have to promote more women in positions of power. And uh, I mean, the people who have impacted me most in my life, uh, of course, have been women. My mom, who, uh, who I lost 10 years ago in a physical sense, from breast cancer was my best, best, my best, best friend, still is. And um, actually the first thing I did when I became councilman was I created the Imani Food Distribution Center. Her name was Imani. And we feed over a thousand people a month in partnership with the Greater Cleveland Food Bank. So, um, so this is very important. Councilman, we referenced the at the top of this program, the fact that you're the first and only Muslim uh, member of council. This question is pretty straightforward. How does your faith inform your social justice work? You know, I don't do this work because I want to turn everyone Muslim. I don't serve people because I want them to become Muslim. I serve people because I am Muslim. And that's the reason why I serve people. And that's a part of my tradition. And as I'm maneuvering, you know, someone said to me the other day, you know, aren't you afraid to speak up about this and speak up about that? But when you are walking in your on your path, um, no, I'm not afraid. I, I'm two classes away from finishing my master's in religion. So I'll be ha I'll have my master's next year. Um, I'll be graduating. So um, because faith plays such an amazing part, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Christian, whether you're Muslim, whether you are Hindu, whether you're Buddhist, whatever, faith is what guides me. And many times I tell you, man, being on city council, there's been things that I've fought for in regards to equity where I felt alone. I felt by myself. But um, but my faith is what kept me going. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I go over to my uh, a few of the rabbis inviting me over to dinner and me and my family. We go over, we eat dinner and I'm recognizing that those who have who have a faith that they follow seriously, we're not different. We have much more similarities than we do differences. And um, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm thankful. I'm a third generation Muslim. My grandparents were Muslim. My mother and father was Muslim and I'm Muslim and my children. Um, but I want all people of all faith uh, that if you if you're truly a person of faith, um, then you must fight for justice. If you're a person of faith, you must absolutely must um, stand on the front line against how we are treating the immigrants, the immigrants uh, on the borders of America or how the LGBTQ community is being affected or how black people and brown people and how women, you can't say that you love God, but hate God's people. Uh, it doesn't make sense. Has your faith, uh, often people's faith journeys um, take detours. Uh, you sound very strong in your faith today. Um, and as a third generation Muslim, you know, growing, growing up in the tradition, um, I'm just curious to hear you talk more about your journey because I, as you know, when all of us, when we're young men, it's, it's different. 
Well, you know, Dan, thank you for that question. My voice may sound strong today, but maybe next week it'll sound weak. Um, and our tradition says that faith goes up and down, goes up and down. But the beauty of it, I'm reading a book right now talking about the divine love of God and how if God had the ability to see all, doesn't he have the ability to heal a broken heart? I think that when we talk about God, we have to do a better job of speaking about love. And we don't speak about love enough because love, with love, love will give you the courage to keep fighting, to keep moving, to keep pushing. And if you understand and know that God loves you, that God loves you, that there's, there's something greater that truly loves you. And this power is not reactive. You know what I'm saying? Like God doesn't come into knowledge. Like God doesn't learn something new about you. You learn something new about you, but God doesn't. When we recognize that no matter what you do, you cannot stop God from loving you. You may move away from God. One of our teachers, the student asked our teacher, I feel distant from God. My teacher, she responded, well, who moved? Who moved? Right. Who moved? <laughs> um, Councilman, another question for you, a quick over, asking for a quick overview of your five-year vision for a transformed city of Cleveland. You know, the number one, we have to address the atrocities of inequity in this city. We have to. And the way that we do that is that we must work with those organizations who have a history, who have a history of fighting for these issues. We have to have a plan for diversity in our safety forces. We must, we must, we must change the way that City Hall does business. It shouldn't take two, three years for a simple permit to go through. So it has to be an overhaul within City Hall to have things move a little quicker. We have to increase art. We have to increase youth programming. We must invest. We must invest in not only building buildings, but invest in people. And as you're looking at people who come to you, Dan, and others who are out there, don't allow people to just talk to you about what they're going to do. Ask them what have they done? What issues have they shown courage on? What issues have they stood alone on? Because you can't be a leader for no one and nobody if you're not willing to stand alone when nobody else stands with you. I think that we have to become a city where young people feel welcomed. And it can't be a brain drain where our young people go off to college and not want to return because there's no opportunities for them. Young people have to feel wanted and taken care of. And we cannot forget our elders and our seniors. They have to be able to age in place. And what that means is we have to make sure that they're comfortable, that they're okay, and that their concerns are heard, whether it has to do with trees, where the houses are falling down, whether there's lead in the homes. We have to address issues. City Hall must address issues quicker. We have the ability to do it. We just have to have the desire to make it happen. Councilman, another question for you. Uh, there are significant homeless shelters located inside of your ward. How do you see social service delivery changing in this new world with COVID-19? You know, I was just, you know, uh, debating with someone and they were talking about, you know, uh, uh, this these resources that are coming down and say, well, if, if, if they have a phone, they should be able to. I said, well, hold on. If they don't have phones. <laughs> So recently I allocated some money to uh, Lutheran, uh, Lutheran uh, uh, Ministries 
to hire outreach workers. I've been giving resources ever since I came into council to LMM. Um, recently, we built a home in our uh, uh, in our ward to assist those who are homeless who are moving into having a home. Um, so this is very important from from our homeless population. For those who don't know, my family. I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. When my family moved to Cleveland, we were homeless. We lived in the Salvation Army. Much respect to the Salvation Army and all the work that they do. Um, moved in the Salvation Army, lived there. And the first place that they moved us to from the shelter was to Ward 7. So the homeless population is very important to me, all the way to um, those individuals who are doing extremely well. How do we make sure from our homeless population to our business owners, small businesses, black businesses, minority-owned businesses, right, uh, corporations, how do we make sure everyone feels that they have a part of this city? We have the ability to do it, but I believe that we just have to communicate a little bit differently. Councilman, I'm gonna need you to just rewind the tape a little bit and uh, expand on how you came to Cleveland. That, I, that is not a story that I knew, and I'm sure many other listeners and, and others in our audience would like to hear more about your journey. Don't make me cry, man, but uh, you know, uh, poverty has a way of moving you. And uh, originally in, from Brooklyn, New York, you know, my family, my mom, uh, who did an amazing job, you know, poverty uh, kept us in shelters. And um, we moved to Cleveland. I had an auntie here. We moved here only to find that, that Cleveland was just a smaller city uh, with the same symptoms. And we moved into, we, we became homeless here as well. Um, I went to Case Elementary, then to MLK Middle School and High School. I graduated from there, then graduated from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And I wouldn't have been able to get in if it wasn't for Dr. Reverend Otis Moss Jr., who wrote me a recommendation letter. Went off to Morehouse, went to Howard University for grad school, came back, did radio, did politics, wanted to figure out a way to do more. And the congresswoman said to me one day, Congresswoman Marsha Fudge said to me one day, she said, an elected official is different from a public servant. And when she said that, that changed the way I viewed politics. That I can be a public servant, I can be an activist. I don't wanna be an elected official in that sense. I don't wanna stay in office and just be in office because it looks good. I want to see a change in our community. I wanna see a change in politics. It's what impacts our everyday community. So then I didn't come here to play games. I didn't come here to be here long. I came here to make a change and I want the history books to be able to say that while I was here, that I was a fighter, I stood up for all people, despite their language, despite where they came from, because that is that is the human way. Councilman Bashir Jones, we're gonna leave it there. Um, thank you for your time, for sharing your story, for sharing your passion, and for your work as a public servant. We appreciate it. Dan, appreciate I thank it. you, I thank you, man. And uh, this mayor's race is gonna be interesting. Thank you. It will be. Thank you very much. Yes. I want to thank everybody for joining us for our forum today with Bashir Jones, Cleveland City Councilman for Ward 7. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, along with many other generous member sponsors and donors. You can see listed on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them when you support our work by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. Our forums are going to continue to be virtual, either here or from the IdeaStream studios. You can join us on Friday at 1230 as we talk to Robin Steinberg. She's founder and CEO of The Bail Project about the crisis of unaffordable cash bail. 
want to invite you as well to just get in touch if you have ideas or thoughts about other topics and speakers we should be touching on. Um, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. You can find all of our email addresses there, including mine. I'm also on Twitter at Dan Malthrop. So thank you so much. Stay strong, stay healthy, friends. And our forum is adjourned. I don't have the gong with me, but you can imagine it. Thank you. Our forum is adjourned.